Okay, so today we're gonna be wrapping up our series about some really confusing parts of scripture. Um, We've been using as a guideline this little book called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball, really super good book. I've been teaching a lot pretty much straight out of this book. I really encourage you to pick up a copy of it. It's been helping us navigate some really tough questions in the Bible that can really confuse people and can really cause people to lose their faith. And today, um, save the best for last. I saved really, I think, the hardest question for today because I can reconcile misogyny in the Bible with a God who sees men and women equally. And I can accept that in the Bible there are stories of slavery, but that doesn't mean God condones slavery. And I can see how science doesn't have to be wrong for the Bible to be right. But today we're gonna talk about divine violence. And this is a really hard one because the Bible does have a lot of violence in it. And it's really hard to reconcile that with who we believe God to be as this loving God. There's a lot of violence in the Bible, man. And a lot of it is God's doing. And it's even in stuff that we don't even, like we've gotten so used to it that we don't even see it anymore. It's in every story in the Old Testament, it seems like, and the stories that we tell our kids. You know, we all love the story of David and Goliath, right? We gotta hear David and Goliath. There's the, there's the way we present it, right? Isn't that sweet? And it's a really cute story about this little boy, and he picks up five smooth stones, and he's gonna go take on Goliath, and he's not afraid of Goliath because he knows God is with him. And he throws the first stone and hit Goliath in the head, and he falls over, and the victory is won. And it's just a sweet little story about, what, courage? and faith, and profound violence. Because right after that, while Goliath is still laying there with his cute little X's on his eyes, David runs over and chops his head off. We don't talk about that that much in Sunday school, right? And then the Israelites chased the Philistines, and wherever they caught them, they slaughtered them. So we don't always tell, you know, all the stuff. It's easier for us just to kind of gloss over some of the harder, more violent stuff. We all love the story of Jericho, right? We taught our kids that story since they were little. It's it's even got its own song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. It's a sweet little song. It's a cute little story about the, the Israelites marching. They didn't even send their soldiers. They sent their worship leaders and they took trumpets and horns and they walked around and they praised God for seven days and the walls came tumbling down. And that means that the walls of your life can come tumbling down if you just sing praises to Jesus. And it's an amazing story of God's power and it's an amazing story of God's protection and it's a story of profound violence because what we don't tell the kids Right? And what we never want to talk about is that when those walls fell down, they fell in on a whole city of people that were going to work and gardening and learning to ride a two-wheeler. Right? And after the walls fell in and those huge stone blocks crushed all of those people, the Israelites rushed in with their swords and finished off the survivors. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and he killed all the women and kids. We don't sing that part, right? We kind of gloss over the violent part. Uh, the story, how about Noah's Ark? I mean, that's a happy story right there. 
right? Because we've seen the pictures, right? And they all look just like that, don't they? Oh, there's Noah. And he's got like a little baby leopard in his arms or something. And Mrs. Noah's feeding a giraffe to a, a carrot or something. And everybody's just having a great time. And they're bouncing around in that boat. And what we don't think about is that floating in the water were millions of dead, bloated bodies. We just kind of gloss over the violence, but the, we have to face it, man. The, the violence is real, and that part doesn't come up in our conversations, and it doesn't come up in our kids' classes, and it doesn't show up in our kids' songs until today. Because today we're going to sing the full disclosure version of what was my favorite song when I was teaching three-year-olds, um, Noah and the Arky Arky. You guys know that song? Raise your hand if you know that song. I'm gonna depend on you to sing with me, okay? So there's about 100 verses to this song, and so we're gonna pick one, and then we're gonna add two, okay? So we'll put the words up. I don't think you're gonna have trouble catching this, but I need you to sing with me because I'm a terrible singer, okay? Just imagine we're teaching this to our three-year-olds in the classes, here it goes. God told Noah, okay, you gotta sing. If you're not gonna sing, I'm not doing it. Are you gonna do it or not? Okay. God told Noah to build him an arky, arky. God told Noah to build him an arky, arky. Build it out of gopher, barky, barky, children of the Lord. Remember that song? Let's sing verse two. God told Noah we're gonna drown people, people. God told Noah we're gonna drown people, people. Water high as a Baptist churchy steeple, children of the Lord. Everybody sing their third verse. God told Noah, you're gonna go boating, boating. God told Noah, you're gonna go boating, boating. You'll see millions of corpses floating, floating children. That was sweet. It's a, it's a violent story, man. It's a story. Everybody dies except Noah and his family. And it's not just those stories. It's all through the Old Testament. We see these stories of God doing really violent stuff. Look at this verse in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, it's 1 Samuel 15, 2. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came into Egypt. So go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Even the donkeys. It's, it's hard to reconcile a God of love with a God who calls for wiping out a whole nation of people. And it's just really hard to understand when we read the New Testament and we see Jesus is all about love and peace. And we look in the Old Testament, we see this God of incredible wrath and judgment and violence. And there's a couple of ways that I think people, Christians, try to deal with uh, the divine violence. Um, one is the no apology approach. And this is people that just say, you know what, he's God and he does what he wants. 
And it, the Bible says his ways are higher than our ways. We can't understand his ways. And I don't need to understand his ways. It's on a need-to-know basis. And he's God. He does what he wants to. Um, have you ever, like, built something? Or maybe you've taken on an art project or a Pinterest cooking thing or something. And, like, you start working on it and you have high hopes and it's just, like, not happening. It's just getting worse and worse. And you try to fix it and you try, well, how about if we do this? How about if we do that? And then eventually you say, you know what, forget it. It Just scrap it and we'll just start all over again. Um, this happened to my wife, um, Margaret. Um, this has been a while back. She was going to make some cinnamon rolls for a Bible study for this breakfast thing they were doing. Very excited. Of course, she gets to Pinterest. Of course, that's where you go, right? And she found this amazing recipe for these super amazing cinnamon rolls. And so she got up at like 2 in the morning to start working on these things. And she's making them and forming them and doing all the stuff and mixing everything together. And she makes these beautiful cinnamon rolls. I mean, the smell and aroma pleasing to the Lord. It was all through the house. It was awesome. And now, I don't know if you guys know this, the secret to good cinnamon rolls is whatever the recipe calls for on icing, double it. That's the secret. And so that's what she's doing. She's making this huge batch of icing, and she thought, wouldn't it be cool to put just a little bit of cinnamon in the icing? And it's going to be like the piece. That's, that's the thing that sets it off. And so she grabs it. She puts it in there, and she's mixing it around. And she, she took a picture of it when it was done. I mean, it was just beautiful. And so now she's cleaning up, and she's licking her fingers. And she realized that instead of putting cinnamon, she had put cumin so, yeah, they both start with C. Um, they don't taste the same. Uh, and so she's trying, you know, she calls me, what can I do? And I said, I mean, uh, more sugar, you know, <laughs> uh, more cinnamon, uh, cook them longer. I mean, uh, anything, add water, uh, anything. And I mean, of course, at some point you just say, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just not happening. And she just trashed them and went to the donut place instead. So... Some, which she should have done in the first place. Some people are just okay saying, God's a creator, man. He can do whatever he wants with his creation. And if he wants to destroy a whole batch and start over, that's his prerogative. I mean, we even have an expression, right? We say, oh, you're playing God, right? When somebody's gonna determine when somebody should live and die, what do we say? Oh, you're playing God. And the reason we have that, that expression is that we recognize it. we are the creation, and he's the creator, and determining when a life should end is his prerogative. I don't think that means we want to doubt God, though. I mean, especially if he might kill us. But questioning God and doubting God are not the same thing. Questioning God is what we've been doing for the last six weeks, right? Questioning God is just us asking hard questions and trying to really understand what he's really trying to say to us. Questioning God is just trying to really know him. And that's what, that's what I want. Isn't that what you want? I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna know him. And I have to say that all this violence, it seems a little out of character for him. So I just, I just wanna understand it. So even though there's some truth to it, I struggle a little bit with the no apology approach. Um, some Christians go with the maybe it's written wrong approach. They read the Bible, they see these really hard, violent things, and they say, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's not really what happened. Maybe um, they thought God told them to kill everybody, but they just, they misunderstood him, and he didn't say that at all. And so maybe it's just, maybe it's just like it's written wrong. Or maybe the, the biblical authors were history revisionists. 
right? We hear a lot about that these days, right? Maybe, like, they just changed a couple of details to maybe make themselves look good. You know, before this stuff was written down, it was passed down verbally, right, from generation to generation. And maybe some kid said, Grandpa, why did you slaughter the Amalekites? And Grandpa said, uh, uh, God told us to. Maybe there was just a little bit of, you know, maybe it's just not exactly right. And so some people just like gloss over it, man. Let's just kind of ignore the violence. It doesn't sound right. It's probably just a mistake. So let's just skip over that part. Um, maybe it's written wrong. And I think we do need to remember that the Bible is a collaborative work between God and a whole bunch of authors. And it's not impossible. It's, it's probable. They probably were influenced by their own personalities and by their own agendas. But do you see how dangerous this is and what a slippery slope it is? This is God communicating with us. And we can't just pick, well, I think that part's from God and I don't think that part is. And I think that part's inspired, but I don't think that part is. It, because then you have to ask the question, well, if that part's not true, what else in there is not true? And God did give the authors some leeway. He did. He, he wanted their personalities to come out. He wanted their perspectives to come out throughout the Bible. Otherwise, why do we have four Gospels, right? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all telling the same story? Why? Why do we need four? And I think the reason we need four is because we get four different perspectives, right? We get four different angles, four different understandings, and four different personalities kind of speaking in to what really happened. But on the important core information about who God is, we covered this last week, we believe in the infallibility of Scripture. It will not fail. Isaiah 55, 11 says God's word goes out and it will accomplish what he set it out to do. And what he set it out to do was to help us know him. So again, I think we have to be really careful with the maybe it's written wrong approach. Um, as you might guess, I like the rules of engagement approach. And these are the rules that we've been looking at as we've been going through this thing. And the truth of it is, I don't know the answer to this. It's a, a, a super loving, gentle, kind, merciful God is, is hard to reconcile with all this hardcore violence. But I wanna leave room for the idea that maybe we're just not getting the whole picture or maybe we're missing something, or maybe we're misunderstanding something, or maybe we're taking something kind of out of context. So let's just try, think of all these violent things, of God drowning all these people and slaughtering a whole town of people, even the kids, even the donkeys. Let's think of the walls falling on people. Let's think all that violence, and let's just try to kind of a, a, just apply these rules to some of those things and see if it gives us any help at all in dealing with this. So rule number one is it's not a book. It's a library, and it's written by lots of people over 1,500 years in multiple languages, and then it was translated at least once, so a lot could get confused between Hebrew and Greek and Latin and English over 1,500 years in different cultures and different people, so maybe we're missing something? Maybe we're misunderstanding something or misinterpreting something? Rule number two says it's written for us but it wasn't written to us. So this was written to God's people, the Israelites, when they were coming out of 400 years of slavery, and they'd been around all these fake Egyptian gods, and maybe these stories were intended to like emphasize God's power 
over his enemies. And not, not that the authors lied, but maybe they just really wanted people to see God's justice and they wanted people to see God's power. So to like super emphasize God's strength and invisibility, maybe they used some war rhetoric. Like, you know, almost every time in the Bible where we see, you know, they completely wiped out a city, they destroyed everyone there, then later we'll read about some of the survivors. So there's at least exaggeration, maybe there's just a little bit of rhetoric. Maybe when it said God's army completely wiped out a city, that was partly rhetoric to inspire people to trust God as they face new enemies. We do this all the time, right? I mean, we use hyperbole when we're talking, we use rhetoric when we're talking. I'll give you an example, uh, the other night at our Iron Man cookout, we played basketball afterwards, and so we're dividing into teams, and we divided it into the old guys and the young guys. I was on the old guys team, and we killed them. We slaughtered them. We destroyed them. But we didn't really kill them, right? We didn't really slaughter them. We didn't really destroy them. I mean, we gave them a thumping, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but those words, kill and destroy, we annihilated them, that's, that's rhetoric. That's telling the story in a way that emphasizes a, a critical thing, which is old and wily is better than young and fast, right? We, we, we emphasize the story with those words, and maybe these really violent stories were intentionally told in a way that made sure that God's people knew God always overcomes his enemies and no one can escape the power of his judgment. So this stuff was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was, re it was written to people that really needed to know that God's justice and God's power were real. And by the way, these people that this was actually written to did not see the violence as some angry, out of control, arbitrary violence. They saw God's wrath as his righteous judgment. And they were okay with the no apology approach. Rule number three says, you can't just read a verse, right? We can't just read one little passage. You gotta put it in context of the whole story of the whole Bible, and it's a really long, really complex story, and if you just pull out the violence part, if you just pull out the violent part, apart from the story, you might miss what it was, because these violent acts were never just arbitrary, random violence, or you know, the volatile anger of God just losing it or something. There was always purpose. And sometimes it, it was, it was, it was executing judgment of somebody or a whole people, but it was after so many warnings. Sometimes it was after hundreds of years of God warning a people, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, God's hope was that all of these people would, would turn, these nations would come back to him and not have to be punished. So this isn't from the book of John, this is Ezekiel, this is Old Testament stuff, Ezekiel 18, 21. God says, if, if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what's right and just, they will surely live and not die, and all their past sins will be forgiven, and they'll live. 
because of the righteous things they've done. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I just want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. So turn, turn from your wickedness. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 30. I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessing, I'm giving you the choice between blessings and curses, and now I'm calling on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Look what he says, oh, that you would choose life. He's given them the choice. This isn't just some arbitrary selection, okay, you live, you die, you live, you die. He's given them a choice. He's saying just choose life so that your descendants can live. He was always giving warnings. He was always giving choices. He was always giving second chances. But there are times where we see God say, okay, I gave you a choice between life and death, and you chose death. But it was never just God venting. It was, it was judgment on a people that he had warned and, and tried to save forever. And I think there, there are other reasons that we maybe don't always see or always understand. Um, when the, when, when the Israelites were going into the promised land, they came up against all the ites, right? The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Hittites, and the Midianites, and the Mosquito Bites, and all these ites, right? And, and one of the Ammonite kings said his goal was to gouge out the right eye of every Israelite. So this was not just like minor disagreements. This is, this is war. And God didn't want his people to get sucked into those other cultures and, and, and religions and, and the evil practices that they were doing. Like the Ammonites, they worshiped a God called Molech. And one of the things that they did was they did human sacrifice with babies and they would serve the babies up on burning skillets, iron skillets to this God, Molech. And so some of this stuff, God said, not only are you not allowed to join in with those people, but you gotta stop that stuff. You gotta, you gotta just, just wipe them out. We've got to end this. Again, I have to say though, still, it's hard to read God saying, kill a whole town. Men, women, kids, kids. And there, there's not, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And there's not much comfort in it. But one thing I guess that's worth thinking about is if these kids had grown up to be adult Ammonites or whatever, they would have continued sacrificing babies. And they would have eventually died themselves. And when they did, they would be eternally separated from God. So at least if they died as war casualties, as children, at least they went to heaven. I mean, is that a good trade? Uh, to die as a kid, as a casualty of war, and go to heaven forever, versus living a life of murder and sacrificing babies and then spending forever in hell. Um, I mean, I don't wanna make that call. And again, that's why it's literally called playing God. It's, that's his prerogative. And I think he has a better understanding of what the length of this life's value is versus eternity in heaven. It's just hard. It's just a really, it's a really long, really complex story and it's about a really complex God. 
this book is about a really complex God. It's, it's God communicating with us. And one thing he's trying to communicate is who he is. And who he is is very complex. I mean, he's, he's the creator of everything. He's everywhere at the same time. He, he knows everything. And he's loving, and yet he's just. And he's powerful, and yet he's gentle. And he's patient, and yet he will not accept sin. He's just really, really complex. And you know, you don't, you don't read a line or a chapter in a biography and think you know the main character, right? You have to read the whole book. And then you put each chapter and each line and each word into context. I mean, you guys know me, right? Yeah? Would you say that I'm a compassionate, kind, loving person? Say it louder because it's being, <laughs> this is being streamed, so. Yes, okay, okay. But imagine this. What if you never heard of me before today? Now you come into this church and I'm singing a song about floating corpses, corpses, right? And that's all you know. That's all you know is I came in, the preacher singing a song about bodies bobbing in the water. Then do you really know me if that's all you got? And I'm, I'm not that complex, but you can't hope to really know God by a couple of snippets, right? By a couple of little stories in the Bible. Um, you guys know Mary Poppins? Come on, old people. You know Mary Poppins? Okay, so this is like a really sweet movie. My cousin Julie Andrews is in it. Um, <laughs> about what, a just delightful, sweet nanny, right? Mary Poppins. And she comes to these people's house, and she loves their children, and she's teching them songs, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? You, you remember that? A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. She's the sweetest, kindest, most loving, delightful person in the world, right? But that's because we saw the whole movie. If you'd only seen like little parts of it, little snippets of it, you could get a completely distorted view of who Mary is. You might even think she, like she's some kind of monster or something. It would make really a great horror movie. Um, and we would call it Scary Mary. <laughs> Take a look at the trailer. Coming to a theater near you, 
If you didn't see the whole movie, you might completely miss who Mary really is. And if you don't read the whole Bible, you might completely miss who God really is because this has probably never been said from the pulpit before. Just like Mary Poppins, God is very complicated and not easy to understand, especially this weird like balancing act of him being super kind and gentle and compassionate and also very just and very harsh and being a God of wrath, a God of wrath and judgment. But if you read the whole story, you see that it's really not much of a balance. You know, we've got the whole Bible revealing his grace and his mercy and his love and really just a handful of stories about judgment and wrath. And we wanna know the whole God, right? We wanna know God for real, not just one aspect of him. We want the whole picture of who he is. So um, you wanna know a Bible book that kind of shows this in a really kind of a strange way? Say yes. It's a book that you might not have ever read and it really gives great insight on who God is and this book is not afraid at all to face up to the harsh judgment of God. And it's the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Probably not in your daily devotional. Um, the book of Lamentations is a whole book of lamenting. It's a whole book of mourning and crying. It's actually five poems about how awful and brutal God's judgment is. And so you know the story, um, God gave the Israelites a million chances, right, to keep their covenant and to uh, not join other, the other people around them and their religious practices and do the evil around them and to worship their gods. He gave them a million chances. How'd they do? Wah, wah, right, they did terrible. And so the whole book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah basically saying, come on, people, turn around. We gotta turn back to God. He's being patient, but I'm telling you, he's given us a choice between life and death, and we're choosing death. We, he's gonna bring judgment. He's gonna bring judgment, and it is gonna be awful. And he was right, because at some point, God finally said, okay, Israel, that's, that's it. You're going into exile in Babylon, and the Babylonians are gonna come in, and they're gonna destroy you, and they're gonna destroy everything that you hold sacred. They're gonna burn down your temple, and they're gonna destroy Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, like, represented God's promise, right? This was the new holy city. And they're gonna haul you back to Babylon like slaves, and it's like, it's the worst thing that ever happened to God's people. And you know what made it especially horrible? What made it worse than anything else is that they couldn't even pray for help. Right, when they were under attack from the Philistines or the Egyptians were enslaving them and all that stuff, they could pray to God for help. They couldn't even ask God for help because he's the one that was sending the judgment. He's the one that was causing this thing to happen. So somebody, probably Jeremiah, wrote the book of Lamentations. And it's just poems crying and just bemoaning this horrible judgment that God had brought on Israel. So there's a, the scene set, right? You guys up for some digging. We said we were gonna really try to really understand what it's really trying to say to us, right? Um, so uh, Bible nerds and geeks, get ready. Um, everybody else, it'd be a good time if you wanna like check your social media feed or something because this could be a little boring for you. Um, because we're not just gonna look at the words in these poems, we're gonna look at the literary design of these poems. So Bible geeks, get ready. This, I'm telling you, this is, this is genius. This is the genius of the biblical authors. So Lamentations is five chapters, and each of those chapters is an acrostic poem. And that means that each line starts with the next letter 
of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can imagine if we had a poem in English, the first line starts with A, the second line starts with B, right? So this is five different poems. Uh, and each of them has 22 lines because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And it is like so sad. It's, it's like a really sad, beautiful poetry. The, the words and the imagery are just so sad. Like, like God, you know, we trusted you. You know, how could you do this to us? Our lives are over. And everything beautiful is garbage and everything sacred is defiled and it's our fault. Look, I'll just read you the first couple of lines, okay? This is Lamentations 1.1. Jerusalem, the holy city, right? Once so full of people is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, now she's a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. And all of her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. And it is just five chapters like that. Super sad, super heavy, dark imagery. And chapters one and two and four and five have 22 verses each because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But the center chapter, chapter three, is 66 verses, 66 lines. And it's like these two at the beginning and the two at the end are pointing to this centerpiece, right? It's a literary design of this poem. These 22 verses and these 22 verses and these 22 verses and these 22 verses are pointing to the centerpiece, the big one, the 66 verse. So it's like, Sad, horrible, judgment, pain, violence, sad, horrible, pain, judgment, violence, sad, horrible, pain, judgment, sad, horrible, pain, judgment, and they're pointing to the center and right in the middle of the sadness and right in the center of despair, in the middle of all this anguish about this horrible, violent fate that God has sent on them in the very middle verse of the very middle chapter, the center, the, the core of this treatise of God's harshness and violent judgment, we find this totally out of place message. So this is Lamentations 3.31. It says, no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Verse 19 says, the thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. In the middle, the very center of all of this brutal violence and harsh judgment, we see the centerpiece of God's judgment and his character, his, like his core values. In the middle, in the middle, in the peak, in the center, in the core of who God is, is his compassion 
and his faithfulness and his unfailing love. It's like the whole book about God's harsh judgment is just directing our attention to who God really is. And these verses about God's compassion and his unfailing love, they seem totally out of place in the book of Lamentations, but they do not seem totally out of place in the Bible. In fact, they are the most common descriptors of God in the Bible. When God, what God most wants to reveal to us about who he is is not about his judgment, and it's not about his justice. It's that he is completely compassionate and faithful, and that his love is unfailing. That's who he really is. And it's all through the Old Testament, and it's all through the New Testament. It's the most repeated description of God in the Bible. I'll show you one, another place it comes up. It's in Exodus. So in Exodus, they've just come out of Egypt. He saved them. He took them out of slavery, right? And then remember, the army was chasing them, and the Red Sea opened, and they walked across, and the sea caved in and crushed all the soldiers and all that stuff. He's led them. He's guided them. He's protected them. He's given them food. He's given them water. He's given everything that they want. Now Moses goes up on the mountain for like 15 minutes, and while he's gone, they turn on God. They start complaining, oh, we were better off back in Egypt. At least we had something to eat there. We're gonna die in the wilderness. Who is this God? We shouldn't have trusted him. We should have stayed with those Egyptian gods. We'll just make our own God. After all he had done for them, after all he had done to save them and rescue them, he's taken them to the promised land, and just in a couple of minutes, they say, you know what? Here's how little we think of God. We'll make our own. We'll make a statue of a calf, and we'll call that our God. After all that he did, they completely forgot about him. And God thought about burning them down. The Bible tells us that he thought about killing them all and just starting over. But he didn't. Instead, he uses this time to show his compassion and his faithfulness and his unfailing love. This is what he says in Ephesians 34, 6. He says, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, and I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. God is complex, and there is definitely a part of him that's about judgment and justice and even violent punishment, but that's not his defining characteristic. That's a, that's a tiny piece of a God who, at his core, the, the center of who he is, is compassion and faithfulness and unfailing love. Rule number three, it's all part of one big, amazing, complex story. And rule number four is, the whole story ultimately is about Jesus because this whole violent story ends with Jesus coming back and restoring God's kingdom and ending violence and hate and sin permanently. And then there will be no more violence and there will be no more hate in God's creation and there will be no more harsh judgment because once sin is gone, there will be nothing left for God to judge and the world will be at total peace. In fact, Isaiah describes it as, he says, people will hammer their swords into plows and hammer their spears into shovels. And there'll be no more violence, even with animals. It says the wolf and the lamb will eat together. Babies will play with cobras. And peace will rule between people and even animals. 
And most importantly, peace will be fully restored between God and man. And that's how the story ends, just like it began. No judgment, no violence, no death. Sin and punishment are over. And now it's just God's perfect creation, ruled by his favorite creation, humanity. And thanks to Jesus, humans are finally, fully back together with a loving, faithful, compassionate God. The end. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for showing us who you are. And sometimes, man, I admit, it's like looking at the sun. I know it's valuable and powerful and we depend on it for life, but I also see it's so scary just by its sheer power. And so God, man, we wanna, we wanna honor who you are and we wanna see who you are and we wanna, we wanna fear you in the good Old Testament sense of just utter respect and really seeing how awesome you are. But God, we also wanna see at your core, you revealed yourself in Jesus. You showed us your compassion. You showed us your faithfulness. And you showed us your unfailing love and you show it to us throughout your word. So God, as we're trying to digest and trying to make sense of these hard passages of violence, God, will you just help us temper that with looking at the overall character of God and seeing who you really are. Yeah, you're about justice and even punishment. But at the end of the day, your core value of who you are is that you're compassionate and you're faithful and you show unfailing love. So God, help us to rest in that even as we struggle through some of these hard passages. And God, thank you for this series and for showing us that it's okay to ask these questions, that it's better to ask them now than we get out in the world and can't defend ourselves. And will you please just strengthen our faith because at the end of the day, this isn't about arguing or making a better case. It's about putting our faith in you and putting our faith in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Okay, a couple of announcements super quick before you go. Number one, Iron Men. Uh, we have a group that meets on Wednesday nights at 6.30. We are not meeting this week, um, but we will be having a barbecue on the 13th. So if you're young and you want to get thumped at basketball, come on out. We'd love to have you. Uh, also, uh, we're starting a financial peace university class. We usually run this once or twice a year, and it's just about some biblical principles about how to handle your money. If you've struggled with debt, if you've struggled to get on top of your finances, just be watching. I would encourage you, you got a connection card, I think, when you walked in today, just write F. P-U, Financial Peace University on your card, and we'll give you a call. Last thing, please, please, please go all the way to the light if you're going to turn around and go south, okay? I'm leaving you with these valuable words of spiritual direction, okay? All the way to the light. Amen? Amen. Thank you. God bless you guys.